Hey, this is a Hakawadi production. Hi, welcome to the men's room. I'm so glad you're here. So I don't usually talk much about my personal stuff, but today I felt like I wanted to share with you a little bit because I feel like we've reached a kind of milestone on this show. The number of you who are listening is growing exponentially every week. And now many of our guests come on not only to tell their story, but because they like what we're doing and want to be a part of it. When I first started this podcast, I knew I wanted to bring you the people in the Middle East who are trying to have a positive impact on the world through their business ideas or simply by doing what they do in a new or better way. But I never imagined there were so many great people and ideas out there, and it feels like the more people I interview, the more are appearing out of the woodwork. And I really feel that you, listening, are part of this group we're creating of like-minded people. It's so easy to get stressed out and bogged down by the little things throughout the day, But when I listen to my guests speaking, it puts everything that's unimportant back in its place, and I feel inspired and empowered. I hope it does the same for you. So I just wanted to say what an amazing feeling it is to have you here with me. If you like being part of this little group we're creating, be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. And if this all sounds a little too much for you, then just think of this as your source for getting to know the Arab world's most influential people. Yeah, that's right. Influencers are not all on Instagram. My next guest is one of these people who came up with an idea that literally has the potential to change the world. And I mean that literally. He's the founder of Ideas Beyond Borders, an organization that translates all kinds of important stuff online from English to Arabic, so that people who only read Arabic can have access to the same information as people in the Western world. Since 2017, they've translated everything from Wikipedia entries to best-selling books. Please welcome my guest, Faisal Saeed Al-Mutar. Hi, Faisal. Hello, Nadia. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I can't believe I've never heard of Ideas Beyond Borders before. And I actually found out about you guys on a Joe Rogan podcast in an interview with Melissa Chen. Did you guys come up with this idea together? We did, uh, almost by now, three years ago. Uh, so on uh, uh, April 1st, it will be our third year anniversary. So, um, and she still works uh, with the organization, right? She's the, uh, what's her Managing role? director. Managing director. Okay. So I want to hear a little bit more about how you started the organization. How did you guys come up with the idea? So, I mean, it's, uh, for me, it's an ongoing uh, journey. I mean, I, I'm, grew up in Iraq myself. And one of the main things that I was facing, I mean, at first, first as, a, as, a, as a teenager was because the fact that I was able to speak English, I was able to access most of the world information. But when I was talking around with my friends in high school, the mentor school, and I've seen that most of them, there was no, I was not able to have a conversation with them because just the language barrier was enough for, um, the conversation not to happen. When you say in school, you mean in, in the U.S., right? No, in, in Iraq. I was born and uh, raised in Iraq myself. Yes, okay. I came to the U.S. only of seven years ago. Okay. So um, I've always had this concept motivation growing up as kind of to be a, some sort of a cultural ambassador in which I make the knowledge from different cultures and different languages available to people around me. So that has been kind of the constant motivation from the moment I, uh, I, I start uh, being engaged in society. 
And then as I moved to the States and um, I started working with a lot of uh, NGOs and the main one was one started by uh, Google Ideas and became its own nonprofit called Movements.org. And Movements.org was mainly, it used to be called the Match.com for Human Rights. Uh, and what we used to do is we created a social media platform in a way that connects activists in closed societies who needed something. For example, I'm a women's rights activist in Iraq who want to get media coverage. And then we recruit a journalist who is interested in covering women's rights stories. And what we do, we connected the person with the request, with the person with the offer. Um, and I worked in that platform for almost four years. And one of the things that I've noticed, well, obviously the idea is, is great and the project is great, is that's mainly been dealing with kind of the tip of the iceberg, um, is that how can we help the, the solving the current issues? But the questions, the ongoing question is that how can we prevent issues from happening in the first place? And that's where kind of another drive for Ideas Beyond Borders is, is to create solutions that are sustainable on the long run um, in, the, in the region. So you guys came up with this idea to create an organization that would translate Wikipedia content and important books, import, books that are important basically to, to our culture, to Western culture, and translate it into Arabic so that and have them available online so that Arabs who don't speak English have access to it. So essentially that's it. And the reason for that was so that they could have access to the ideas, the information, and not be kind of limited by their own um, surroundings. Is this the idea, more or less? Definitely. I mean, yeah, the, the mission is making the inaccessible accessible. And the inaccessible part is that either that's content that was not available uh, before in the language, but also how can we make these some of these complex ideas to be understood by the general public? I mean, one other component that we have within the organization is that we also create summary uh, and short videos in which it can explain, for example, concepts like critical thinking and how can to how can you differentiate between facts and propaganda? Uh, what is cognitive bias? So we have some of original content that we create that are of ideas that are already accessible in Arabic to some extent, but most of them are just in the shelves of, of universities or bookstores that no one reads. So the question is, how can we make these ideas to be easily understood, easily accessible by pretty much everybody um, in the region? Yeah, that's so interesting. So you guys have translated over 7,000 Wikipedia articles to date. Um, I use Wikipedia. Uh, 11, 11,000. 11, oh, my information is old news then. That's amazing. I use Wikipedia all the time, actually, because it gives you information about pretty much everything uh, in a nutshell. And it never occurred to me that people who only speak Arabic or other languages, for that matter, don't have access to Wikipedia. So how much of Wikipedia is available in Arabic or was available in Arabic when you first started? So so the, the kind of the Wikipedia idea, the, the founder of Wikipedia himself, Jimmy Wells, had this um, interesting interview with the Sharq al-Awsat, with the newspaper. And one of the things that he mentioned is that it's really absurd for a language spoken by more than 400 million people, Arabic Wikipedia was still one of the smallest. So I contacted uh, Jimmy Wells, I contacted his assistant, and then I was referred to the program director of the Middle East. And he was like, well, finally, someone is trying to kind of uh, work on that. And at the time, Wikipedia Arabic, and, and now it's obviously has expanded significantly, 
was, I think at the time was in language 21st or the 22nd in terms of size. And now it's the 13th. You mean the 13th biggest uh, second language Wikipedia? Yes, in, in terms of size, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there was there were some articles. I mean, Wikipedia Arabic had some articles at the beginning, but if you look at all the categories that I think are very relevant um, in, in modern society, especially the ones that touches on values, most of them were either just one paragraph or a sentence. And we, I assembled a team, which is now 120 people. Um, some of them live in Lebanon. Some of them live in between Iraq and the Levant, uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. And they work on that on pretty much on full-time basis, in which we take all the list of the articles of Wikipedia on on science, on women's rights, on uh, on human rights, and all of these subjects, and make them available. It's so funny because I remember in journalism school, they always told us not to use Wikipedia as a source. And I still still think they t- teach kids that in schools, but it's really become the de facto reference kind of, um, kind of like Encyclopedia Britannica used to be, right? Yeah, and, and I mean... There are, I mean, Wikipedia as, as, a, as a platform has evolved over time. And they, I mean, many, most of the articles have a lot of references and uh, citations in many reputable websites. I mean, Scientific American and, and Nature Magazine and, and New York Times and others. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an, obviously it's a, what, what I love about Wikipedia is a very evolving uh, mechanism. Yeah. I mean, Encyclopedia Britannica is great, but there are things that happen on day-to-day basis. And Encyclopedia Britannica is far slower than than Wikipedia. Of course, the encyclopedias of, of, of like that are kind of uh, almost like dinosaurs. I mean, Wikipedia really keeps up with what's happening now. Um, so you've already reached, um, forgive me if my numbers are not correct, over 4.2 million people in 120 countries. Yes. Which is kind of mind-boggling. Theoretically, the amount of information that's now in people's heads after you've done that, especially students, as they go out into the world, this could potentially change the future of the region, right? I totally believe that. I mean, one of the things that that I think is, is very essential is that, um, I mean, there is a lot of information out there, but there's a lot of fake information. And growing up with, I mean, growing up in Iraq myself, and Iraq is kind of an interesting situation. I always say, that it moved from 1984 to a brave new world in, in two years. Uh, for those who probably don't have the references, 1984 is the book about authoritarianism by George Orwell. And it talks about how censorship and, and the government pretty much censors all information. And Iraq used to have only two-state television. And after the, the war in 2003, we start having 100 uh, televisions and 1,000 newspapers. And it, we reach now to a level in which there is so much information that most people are unable to differentiate between facts and fiction. And obviously, most of that information is politicized. And, 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 and having the, the source and having content that is referenced, that is factual, um, it will definitely change a lot of the mindset um, in terms of changing the ecosystem that people grow up, grow up in will have lasting effects. Because when, pe- when people are growing up either with tailored information created by states or with fake information created by a propagandist, that creates somebody who is very vulnerable um, to, to lies, very vulnerable to propaganda, very vulnerable to, in some cases, unfortunately, extremism. So creating people who are resilient um, and having that information that when somebody is trying to uh, tell them stories that are false or, or trying to ignite 
forms of sectarianism or hatred against different cultures. And when they are familiar with these different cultures, when they are diff- familiar with, with factual information about other people, I think that will change a lot of the perception, of, especially among the youth who are constantly accessing this information on a day-to-day basis. Iraq is actually a very interesting place because it used to be a very educated society, I've heard. Definitely. Um, and um, then the constant conflicts have, have really moved it. Yeah, with the uh, Iran-Iraq war, I guess, in 79, kind of kick-started the downfall, if I can say. Is that accurate? I mean, gl- gl- glad you mentioned it, because I, I think many, at least many people here in America, many of them have not heard of Iraq until 2003. Um, and the Iraq-Iran war is actually was one of the most devastated, devastating wars that Iraq has ever had. And it lost over a million people dead on both sides and ruined um, lots of Iraq economy and education system. Yeah, and it lasted a long time. It lasted for eight years and then followed by sanctions after the invasion of Kuwait. And that's kind of made it much worse. And then the third war happened. So, I mean, people who grew up, I I mean, say somebody's born in the 70s or or the 80s, they have lived the three wars uh, at least uh, and ignoring the civil war that, 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 that happened after the war. So the usual Iraqi have at least grown four or five wars in a lifetime. When you were growing up in Iraq, did you feel like you didn't have access to information or did you not even know you were missing out on anything? I mean, when I growing up first under the, the Saddam Hussein, um, I mean, we were constantly, I mean, there were three major channels, uh, actually two, then the third one was made for for uh, overseas. And, and in a way that the, the propaganda was so strong that it makes you believe that there is either nothing outside or everything outside is bad. So uh, that kind of was the constant uh, brainwashing that used to happen. And and, and at the time also, uh, satellite television um, was, if, if you get caught by the Mukhabarat, by the intelligence services, it's sometimes punishable by death. So many people, including my, my family, were not able to, to access, even if they want to. However, there were some uh, projects that were that existed at the time, Monte Carlo being one, and there was one by Radio Sawa that used to broadcast to Iraq. Um, we were able to get them around 1 or 2 a.m. in the radio uh, when kind of the, the sky is clear and, and we're able to kind of to hear what is happening in the outside world. I mean, that's pretty much my dad was the one leading that effort. And we... We, at least within my family, we had an idea of what's like in the outside world because my dad studied, studied in the UK and, and uh, we had that information. But most people around us didn't. They mm. were either afraid of acquiring something that meant let them access the outside world but, or they didn't know there is such a thing as the outside world in the first place or, or all of that is a, is a part of a conspiracy and, and, and they're all our enemies. So how old were you when you went to the US? I was 22. Uh, when I when I arrived here, yeah. And how did it feel? You, you, I guess you went there for school. How did you feel when you got there and started living there? I mean, I, I came here. Uh, long story short, I mean, uh, when I was in Iraq and after the war, I also started becoming active and I ended up on many death lists. And uh, so I came to the United States as a refugee, and in 2013. Death lists is that what you call it? Yes, um, uh, that's that's one one. Uh, the the easy uh, way of saying it, but it's it, me and me and so the people who are kind of involved in writing and and uh, which is still an ongoing issue, are a constant target of uh, many militias that operate over there. So that's the reason I escaped uh, Iraq and um, I arrived to the states in 2013 as a refugee, 
and it felt um, it's it's interesting. I mean, I mean that in 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 a week it actually will be my seventh anniversary here in the United States, and it still feels uh, pretty interesting um, to say the least. Do you still have family there, and do you go back? My family all moved here um, to to the U.S., and I have a sister who lives in the U.K. So most of us are um, in in the in in the West. Um, and uh, however, my mom goes back to Iraq fre- frequently, and I'm planning to go um, by the end of this year or, or the beginning of next year. So, do you really feel like people uh, in the U.S. are more worldly and well informed? And I'm talking about the general population because, of course, there's a small, well-educated elite in the U.S. that can talk about great ideas and books, but that's not necessarily a reflection of the masses. A lot of people don't really care to learn or read. They're just content with living a decent life. And so what makes you think that the equivalent Arabs, there are many people like that, I imagine, across the Arab world, who don't have a great education, who read absolutely no English, will have any interest in reading about topics like Um, female scientists, civil rights, and these kind of abstract ideas? I, I, th- I think you, you, you nailed it on the head. I mean, I think some of the need for people to even access or wanting to access this information is survival. One of the main things here in the U.S. is that many people are living in good conditions and are in a situation in which they don't really have to learn much to be able to at least have their basics taken care of. In the Middle East, the, the, at least in some parts of the Middle East, obviously some parts are better than others, there is a need for many people, especially among the youth, to really find out an alternative why their life is, to some extent, miserable. And when, when I was growing up and, and after the war, I was able to access the television and the internet, and I was able to see what kind of the outside world looks like, seeing on YouTube and seeing on, on, on the news and I had an idea what good life looks like, but then the moment I leave my house, I see Al-Qaeda and, 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 and militias and destruction. And that way, in a way, forced me to be like, okay, wh- why, why are we the way we are today? And also, how can we make life better? So in a way, I, I would say is that many people in the Middle East, and especially among the youth, and we can see it now in the protests happening Uh, multiple places is that they are forced to some extent know what is in, to what is in the outside world and the same for like why many people will need in some parts of the Middle East to speak another language whether it's English or French not because they, they necessarily want to learn that language but it's also a language that's necessary for them to get a medical degree or to or to get a job um, while somebody here in the United States does not need to learn another language because him speaking English or her speaking English is enough for them to have the, 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 all the basics of life. So I think that, that there is a difference in that the average person in the Middle East, or especially those who are um, now, many of them are protesting and stuff, they, they are in a very hungry um, and, and curious situation to know how they can make their life better. And that's why our content uh, is... I mean, just the Wikipedia content, and someone can actually verify my claim, is that there are a lot of, of stats, uh, app, uh, sorry, websites and softwares that can see how many views the articles on Wikipedia get. And we actually have about, I think by now, 12 million views, 
we're only a, a three years old organization. I think there's definitely a, a room for growth here. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense, your explanation. Um, you know, out of hardship often comes triumph. You know, we always say that um, the most successful people are the ones that come out of a difficult situation. I guess they're, they're more um, challenged and, and they wanna, they have more of a, a motivation. But how much of the Arab world only speaks or reads Arabic? So according to, to many stats, 70% of people are monolingual. Wow. So that's these are the people who only speak Arabic. It's surprising because a lot of the good schools teach English or other languages. It's quite a, a high number. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, somebody can study. Uh, I mean, I, I, I took some classes in French and doesn't mean I'm able to, to uh, 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 use it outside what I was able to study inside the classroom. I mean, there are so many people who, who could study English in, in, in a higher education. And there is, a, I mean, there are countries, I think Lebanon is, is kind of more advanced in and the amount of people who attend higher education. Yeah. But there are many places like in Egypt and, and, and outside the major cities of Cairo and Alexandria in, in which many people do not attend higher education or or if they go higher education, they go to humanities, which in many cases um, are in Arabic. And those who are kind of a small, so, so in a way it's like you're going smaller and smaller in percentage. You have the smaller percentage who even pursue higher education and there's a smaller, uh, there's a percentage of them who don't study in English and higher education also. So that kind of gets mo- many people who, la- who are not uh, able to, to speak English or understand it on a kind of a more so- sophisticated scale. Yeah, well, not a lot of people speak Arabic in, in the West, so <laughs> I guess it's, uh, Definitely. it's fair. So who funds ideas beyond borders? So Silicon Valley has kind of been our biggest friend. Um, and that's mainly because I used to work for this project that I mentioned that kind of brought me a lot closer to many people who are in the tech industry in, in, in Silicon Valley and also in Los Angeles. So all of our funding so far has been private. Um, I mean, M- Melissa's interview, for example, on Joe Rogan, uh, which has been watched, I think now, like 2 million views um, plus, we use also press and, and crowdsourcing um, on a platform. There is one called Global Giving, which is also connected to Silicon Valley, is and kind of our own base of followers is to kind of use crowdsourcing technology to fund from the, in a way, the general public um, that exists here in the West. So, so far, all of our funding has been a private, but we're planning to change that to see if there are other foundations and, and possibly governments, even though we're very cautious about getting government funding because it might kind of dilute the message but uh it is all of it has been a private so far so you're a non-profit obviously we are yes so the internet of course links the world together and it plays a huge part in this globalization that we've been seeing the more people have access to the same information the more people in different countries have in common with each other this is kind of the logical uh, result. So if you think about it, the more things you have in common, the less different we are. So you'd think that would contribute to some sort of a more peaceful and cohesive world. What do you think? Well, that's definitely the plan uh, on, on, the, on the long run. And ideas, in a way, are, are a language by themselves. People, when many people adhere to the same, at least not necessarily the same ideas, but kind of a basic uh, notion of, of universal values, then that is itself is a language in which people can able to coexist with each other far more peacefully than if they don't have um, similar values and and, and the way that they see each other. So one of the things that we're not only trying to focus to make bring knowledge to the 
to the Arab world, but also some of our work involves highlighting um, women's rights activists that exist in the Middle East as well into the English-speaking language. Obviously, we're doing that in a kind of smaller scale, but people from here, knowing that there are people over there who adhere to values of human rights and, and, and would like to make their countries prosperous, also change the perception that some of the people have here of the of many people in the Middle East. I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I grew up in the Middle East, and yes, I might have some hardships and 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 face the extremism and stuff. But I'm very familiar that many people in the Middle East are, are pretty great, uh, and and uh, and that's not really sometimes the image that that's that many people here in the West have because they only see. When they think of the Middle East, they only see the headlines or the news of, oh, there's a terrorist attack here, and there is a U.S. soldier called there, and there is um, uh, this extremist killing his daughter. But obviously these things exist, and they're real, but they are not necessarily the reflection of, of many people in the region who would like to live in a, in a good life and want to coexist with other people. Well, I think what you're doing is really a worthy endeavor, and it's nice to know that this is like getting done and happening. So... Thank you for doing what you do. How can people access all the information that you talked about, like the books that you translate and stuff that are available online? Well, first, thank you. Um, second, the, the major, the major uh, program, which is the translational program, people can access it on the website called Beit al-Hikmah 2.0. So B-A-Y-T-A-L-H-I-K-M-A 2.org. That is the what we call the library website, uh, and it has kind of the latest articles of Wikipedia we have translated and also the books we have translated and the videos and all of the content. So it's kind of our repository. And the Wikipedia content can be accessed on Wikipedia. So that's that uh, makes life easier. But the major web, our major website is betilhakimatu.org. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Faisal. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And best of luck to you guys. Thank you. That's it, my friends, and thanks for listening to The Men's Room. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and follow us on social media. Bye for now.